Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, September 15th, 2021, and you're watching episode 52. Today, we speak with Harris Cooper, author of American History Through a Whiskey Glass, how distilled spirits, domestic cuisine, and popular music helped shape a nation. Stay with us. Hey guys, we're back, finally, after COVID-19. I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. Yes. We started shooting just before the pandemic lockdown, and now today, our very first day, you are catching us on set, and we would love to talk to you about how you can help get us from here to your TV set. The thing is, we've run out of money. We mounted a pre-production campaign, which was very successful. Thank you very much for that. But now we're back into production and we need your support for this phase. You supported this uh, the first go round, or if you didn't, we welcome your support this time. The thing is we wanna take this show around the world, quite literally. Quite literally. And that takes money. Yeah. So won't you help us get this to market? You can visit whiskeyachefsjourney.com for all of the information you're gonna need to help us realize this project. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> cheers. Our guest today on Spirits of Whiskey is Dr. Harris Cooper, uh, PhD, Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University, also in his quote-unquote retirement, Editor-in-Chief editor-in-chief of American Psychologist, which is the official journal of the American Psychological Association. Welcome, Harris. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, we received a copy of your book, American History Through a Whiskey Glass, How Distilled Spirits, Domestic Cuisine, and Popular Music Helped Shape a Nation. What a mouthful. We always ask our guests about their whiskey journey. So this book is fantastic. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It, it's, it sounds like it's been a long road to make it. So let's hear your story. When you were a young man, did you ever think that you would be writing a book one day all about wh whiskey and the history? Absolutely the not. Absolutely not. Um, we, the way this started was we were in Colorado, where I am now, and um, we were decided that we were going to take a trip to um, Palisades, Colorado, which is the heart of Colorado's wine country. Went into a large liquor store and we're fishing around to see what was there and asked the gentleman, um, uh, where should we visit if we wanted to visit the wineries in Colorado? And the guy paused and then he said, California. And we were kind of sad at the first, at first, but then he took us over to the whiskey section and he pulled off a bottle of Colorado whiskey, which is 
a distillery that's in Palisades. It's called Peach Street. And he said, go visit Peach Street. And he gave us a little bit of background on the um, favorable whiskey laws, spirits laws in Colorado, and said, this is the industry here that's really taking off. So we kind of headed back home. And then we went into a, a bar to, to drown our sorrows. Um, it was actually um, um, the bar at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park that had about 1,200 labels of whiskeys and gins and, and vodkas, etc. And we told, started talking to the guy behind, behind the bar, and he said, we said we were thinking about going. He walked up to the, to the, the whiskeys, and he pulled down a bottle of Peachtree. Okay, well, this seems to be a pretty good place if you're going to learn about whiskey uh, to call a classroom. He was a great young man. Uh, we became friends, and he started telling us about the whiskeys, especially the Colorado ones. And we decided that actually this might be a little bit better thing to do in Colorado than taste the wines. Uh, so now uh, we changed this, this, the uh, setting. Uh, we're going to whiskey dinners and whiskey tastings, and some of them are phenomenal. Uh, some of the greatest evenings I've had, uh, if you're going to drink scotch with a guy who's in a kilt and can tell some of the most off-colored Scottish uh, um, toasts, we, we enjoyed that immensely. And then we also went to some that were absolutely awful. Um, the, that's that's going to happen. That's going to happen, yes. It, and we, the, for example, having, having the host read the descriptions of the whiskeys from an index card while his beads of sweat are, are um, forming on his forehead. And I turned to my wife and I said, you know, we could do a better job than this. Yeah. And she turned to me and said, let's do it. So, and we could almost say the rest is history. I don't want to dominate if you have any other questions. The rest is a lot of history. A lot of history. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it's also the case that I've been a fan of, of American history for longer than I care to tell you, um, reading about it um, in a lot of popular uh, history books, but, but ones that were credible. You, you, you may not care to tell us, but tell us anyway, as in, where did you grow up? Oh, well, I grew up in, uh, in a log cabin in the, in the Bronx, New York. <laughs> I had to walk five miles to school okay. uphill every day with oh. my primer. Over to Marble, to Marble Hill, Manhattan. Oh, to yes. Marble Hill, uh, okay. about three blocks from Yankee Stadium. Um, and I really didn't didn't begin traveling until I became a professional and my professional work took me all over the country and all over the world. So, uh, however, my, my interest in American history really goes back 40, 45 years. And I've been reading about that quite a bit. Also, you know, growing up in the sixties and seventies, popular music was, was part of everything we did everywhere. Life has a soundtrack. I like to say, and they, and that was my soundtrack. Um, older brothers who 
introduced me to music that mm-hmm. maybe I was too young to appreciate. Altamont, and, never forget. Oh, uh, well, yeah, we, well, why don't we forget about it? Okay. Altamont? All right, fine. Okay. Uh, Let yeah. me ask. So the process, uh, you, sell, you told us where the process of this book started. Let's give the listener and the viewer a little bit of information about what's in the book. So how did you decide to attack the research that you were going to be doing on this book? And, um, you know, what, what did you, where did you feel that you wanted to get out of this book? And by the time you finished it, did you accomplish what you thought you were going to, or did it completely change directions? I, well, there's a couple of questions in there. The, the, the beginning of the book comes from dinner parties. We always enjoy doing dinner parties. We would do parties with particular themes on them, typically about music. You know, what's the three greatest rock and roll songs of all time? Um, what are the three song, rock and roll songs you're embarrassed to say you like? If you ever want to do this with your good friends, please do it. They would submit three songs We'd mix them all up and then everybody would yell and scream at each other. And it was just a wonderful time. I'm, I'm picturing who's afraid of Virginia Woolf style evenings where um, you're, you're, you're not friends by the next morning. Not at all. Everybody loved it. In fact, uh, I taught at the University of Missouri uh, for many years and I had to eventually, I like to say I had to leave because this party had grown so large. Um, and if you weren't invited um, you were no longer my friend that, that, that my wife and I, Beth said, had to, said, we have to get out of here. Um, so we moved, to, we moved to Duke. If it's started, the last thing we ever do. Started all over again. Um, so we always enjoyed doing it. And we said, you know what, let's do a dinner party, uh, themed around the whiskeys that we've been learning about. And then, um, I was, I was studying the history of whiskey. I started to read history of whiskey books. And I said, well, let's do this. Let's pick eight periods of American history, about 30 years apart, though they expand and contract as a function of of, uh, how much material there was. And we doled out to our buddies uh, to do small dishes of period recipes. Uh, they could play with them, but the main ingredients would need to be, you know, what did they eat in colonial times? What did they eat in the 1950s? They would bring the dishes. I did the, I did the little historical introduction. Um, we did, I picked the whiskeys. I picked the music that played in the background. And we did it three or four times. And then we said, well, maybe let's, let's branch out a little bit and see if Anybody would like anybody else would like to host it. We ended up doing it at a cooking school, at a a, a country club, um, in a restaurant, and we were just having a wonderful time. My history material was expanding and expanding, and I said, "Well, now we have to have whiskey history 102 because there's so much more to do." So we ended up with 16 different dinners. And finally, I said, you know what, Um, I should really write this up and give it away. Because this was a hobby. It wasn't my way of making a living. And I thought people would really enjoy it. 
I've written for for academic publications. I've had a, a, about a half dozen or so books that I've written for psychologists, in particular, doing research methodology. And um, I sat down. I looked at my notes. I had seventy pages of single space notes, and I said, "Let's get to it." And this is this is the result. Wow! As as books. As books you've written go, this is quite, quite the dramatic stylistic departure for you. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, th- it was one of the best parts of doing it. You could think of it as a textbook. Mm-hmm. Was, but one of the best parts of doing it was trying to get out of, I hate to use this term, but it's the right term, getting out of the voice that mm-hmm. you use when you, when you do academic writing and make it more my voice, um, how I would approach teaching in a class, um, and then from there to getting together with friends. And one of the the great challenges, but one of the funnest parts, was trying to speak through through a book in a particular way that people would find engaging. And maybe along the way, learn something. Yeah, indeed. And you, you integrate histories. Uh, which which are I think all too often examined in isolation, uh, and you also speak with a quote unquote popular voice. Uh, so I, I'll reference Oliver Sacks here. Uh, so you know Oliver Sacks, a famed psychologist who has made his bigger name speaking with a popular voice and and sort of translating psychology for the masses. I I did that in my professional uh, guise. Um, it, it, speaking especially with parents and teachers because that's where my area of expertise ah, was. Okay. And you really did have to change your voice to do it. So I did have, I did have a leg up in that regard. Mm-hmm. Very good. But I went overboard in this one. <laughs> <laughs> so what, do you, what was your favorite thing that you learned while you're writing this or the most surprising thing that you learned? Yeah. That revelatory. Yeah. The, the, I uh, well, one of the the most uh, pleasurable chapters to write uh, was the one on on Mark Twain, the first voice of the American common man, and also quite a whiskey drinker. Yes, um, uh, I've read almost all of his books, and trying to translate that into a a a, a chapter that would hopefully instill an appreciation for um, his work uh, in the reader and call through it to find what was best uh, to put forth to, to give people a sense of who the man was and how he thought and how insightful he could be was really, um, I think, the most pleasurable chapter that I had to write. Well, then that's going to be the next chapter that I read. <laughs> well, I'm disappointed you haven't read it already. Uh, your assignment, you're behind in your <clears throat> Yes, Professor. We do, we do a lot of interviews, just, just so you know. Okay, that's all right. I appreciate you're taking but, other classes, however. Let me tell you, the, the biggest thing I took away from graduate school was skimming. Um, I remember entering doctoral studies and being told by the co-teachers of the introductory seminar you will learn quickly that you cannot read everything we assign you. Okay. So learn how to skim. Okay. I, I will. 
I will accept that as a as a legitimate excuse. <laughs> Maybe. So, let's go back a little bit. Um, what year did you start this journey in Colorado? Once you started, once you decided to do the, the dinners on your own, how long did it go from Colorado's starting point, dinners second point, to finishing the book? That that episode at that um, fateful liquor store was probably seven or eight years ago. Wow. Um, and probably we started doing the dinners, and I really should look this up because I'm asked this question all the time, <laughs> um, about four years ago, three or four years ago when I first had to work up some notes for the first dinner. Um, and the book writing began two years ago, but it, it's not fair to quite say that because like I said, I had 70 pages of right. single space notes by then. Um, and it took about um, six months to get a first draft together. Okay. However, when you talk about a first draft, it was exactly that. So it was probably another year of tinkering um, and running into facts and saying, oh no, this has to go in here. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to the music, but the music was, it was wonderful to put it together. Um, I probably spent a thousand hours listening to music for the book. Um, there were probably uh, three times as many songs that at one time or another were on the list than you see now. Um, so I tinkered with that up until the day that my publisher uh, sent the book off uh, to get uh, printed. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, you know, well, like any good academic, you're always compiling your next book. Uh, you let nothing go to waste. You repurpose journal articles. I'm not saying copy and paste. Excuse I'm saying me. everything. I'm not saying that. Everything is, is, is toward your next tome. Typically, that's the case. Yes. And so, academics do write with potentially more than one publication in mind. Yeah. But it can, be, it can be for different audiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of the chapters that intrigues me a lot is chapter 13. Uh -oh. Ladies and gentlemen, direct from the bar. Uh -oh. Start off with the Rat Pack. So tell me how, how fun that was to look into the yes. Rat Pack well, era. I, I think the, the thing about the Rat Pack, if you want the, the, um, the metacognition, if I may, that goes, along, that goes along with this, is that the five of them are so uh, remarkably unique. They're so diverse in their backgrounds that when I thought about the 50s um, and I thought about what was happening in America at the time, it seemed like they were the perfect vehicle, especially because of their, obviously their love of, of whiskey, right. um, the perfect vehicle to um, present the 50s through the lens that, that the Rat Pack provided. Um, so that, that I can't, you know, when I talk about Twain and I say that it, the difference between the chapters and how much fun they were is absolutely minuscule. So 
learning about uh, Frank Sinatra, his relationship with John Kennedy, his relationship and un not unrelationship and relationship with Peter Lawford, um, the struggles of Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, it was it just seemed like a perfect vehicle for for uh, presenting whiskey and the 1950s, as was the next chapter, which is uh, largely on um, Ava Gardner and John Wayne. Yeah. And you can't forget uh, Ernest Hemingway, too. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. All of them, if there are 10 people who are highlighted in those chapters, each one of them has a unique story to tell not only about whiskey in their lives, but also about America in the 1950s. Yeah. And another chapter that uh, that pops out at me is the one about cowboys and outlaws. Cowboys and outlaws. Uh, that absolutely. Um, uh, that that's again, you know, my love of Colorado is part of learning about the West and um, Wyatt Earp. Uh, the fact that he was very different as a person than he was as a legend. Um, I think the, the, the chapter begins with a quote that said, not, Wider not being able uh, to invent a better future for himself, decided to invent a better past. Yeah. And that's, what, that's essentially what he did. He went to Hollywood. Um, he worked as a consultant on the... On the Cowboy movies. Tom Mix was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. Uh -huh. So, so that, and then the Cowtowns too, which is part of that same section. Uh, it's just wonderful, you know. Yeah. Every, many people have seen Hell on Wheels on television, mm -hmm. but that was a that was a real phenomenon. And the very first thing that went up as the as the train tracks moved through the country. The very first thing that went up was a tent saloon. Nice. Oh, indeed. And, and a quote-unquote opera house, yeah. um, which was in no way an opera house. <laughs> uh, but, but if you constructed one and slapped that name on it, it meant, it meant your town had arrived. Absolutely. You Boosterism. Just, you, you just went upstairs for a different purpose. Than <laughs> That's work. right. That's right. Oh, there were, there were undressing rooms. Yes. There were <laughs> dressing rooms. Uh, but, you know, Hollywood and, and, and greater Los Angeles to this day is a place where people can move. And remake themselves because mm -hmm. no one knows them. That's um, and they can you know, if they failed somewhere else they can succeed here or fail again. But uh, but but you know it's it's difficult to look up their past. Well, with social media, that's that's less the case. And they can all get a job waiting tables. That's yeah. right. Plenty of people got to eat. People they need jobs they waiting they for need people, people right to now. wait tables right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, can we talk about music? For a minute, being being speaking as a music musician and a student of music history. Uh -oh. um, okay, yes, um, but um, um, let's go back to the colonial era, and oh. you know the music of people like William Billings. Uh, you know, t t tell us what you discovered. You know, I love William Billings, Maurice Gottschalk, uh, Stephen Foster, Charles Ives, on and on and on. Uh, the great sort of formative American composers. Mm. Um, tell us what you discovered along the way. For the very first chapter, most of the music was imported. Mm -hmm. It came, it came oh, it did, yeah. with folks, right? If it wasn't European, it didn't count. And, and Stephen Foster plays a large role. He was, a, he was, and he died at a very young age, right? Um, the, the, 
so so that was one of the more difficult ones because finding interpretations or finding credible um, uh, recordings of of colonial music is very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's almost all people today uh, who are interpreting the music. Sure, of course. You can't find you, there. I mean, obviously, there was no original stuff. Right. Per, uh, perform, performance practice is is a a, a, a game of conjecture. Right. A, a game of conjecture. Very good. Not exactly right. guessing. It's better than guessing. It's a little bit better than guessing. We could have had game of conjecture in the very first chapter when we were talking about history at all. Indeed. Sure. Especially whiskey history, where most of the people who were who were making the history were either inebriated at the time the event occurred um, or were doing something illegal. Uh, so so they had a they had a reason to maybe toy with the truth a little bit if they could remember what the truth was. So the, to get back to your question, the, uh, the colonial times was difficult. Uh, Deborah Mesny plays a large role. She's one of the few artists who is uh, represented more than once because she's a great interpreter. Um, <clears throat> it's probably, and then a- after that, I think, is when we get to Stephen Foster. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I did, again, is, uh, and, and it's described this way in the book, it's the music is meant to evoke the times. Some of the stuff that you'll find in each one. So you find um, the theme song from the television show, Daniel Boone. Well, they weren't singing this in Tennessee at the time that Jack Daniels was learning how to make whiskey. But from nearest green. The same from yes. nearest green. The same way. And, he, and nearest plays a very large role in the book. Um, the same way it brought a smile uh, to your face, Philip, when when I said the theme song to Daniel Boone. If you sit, if you're sitting at a dinner and suddenly the theme song to Daniel Boone comes on, there are going to be at least three people of a certain age um, who will begin singing along. As a childhood so, favorite of mine, that show. And Wyatt Earp is this theme song to Wyatt Earp is in there, and for the for the cowboys. The, uh, the high noon, do not forsake me, oh, my darling. How can you write a, a book suggesting uh, particular times and meaning to evoke the Wild West and not include high noon as one of the songs you're going to hear in the background? So you'll find that. And that's, that's a little bit of license that I took. Um, partly I could watch the reactions of the people when we did the dinners and people would yell out songs. And, and as you can imagine with the music, um, I, I enjoy hearing from anyone uh, who wants to argue with me, to complain about a fact that I may have gotten wrong, uh, to suggest how could you have a 1950s playlist and not include this song <laughs> like the theme from f troop right f- <laughs> the end of the civil war was near when quite accidentally right um at the um so so i i get that all the time uh, i enjoy it and sometimes i say yeah you're right 
Um, I have I have Wildwood Flowers uh, version by Reese Witherspoon, and I think I've taken more more uh, grief for that selection uh, than uh, for just about any other one. Um, she's not a great singer, uh, but I wanted to say something about her role in the Johnny Cash story mm-hmm. uh, that she won an Academy Award for. So mm-hmm. I put that one in. So, so the early, the, the earliest stuff was the, the most difficult songs came from the earliest two chapters and the latest two chapters. Mm. The first, in both instances, because I wasn't there. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the 2000s, I'm not there. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I could understand, if I knew who the artist was, that got him on the list. You okay. Know, yes, yes. You know, there's there's Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish. Okay, so grunge is there. As a fan of popular music's, you you internalized grunge, but uh, maybe uh, not this uh, this high eclecticism of the arts. Yeah. I I tried I tried my hardest to uh, make the playlists represent, and you're gonna you you you're gonna take me to task for this to represent as many different genres of music as possible in each era. Uh, men, women, uh, uh, you know, African-Americans. Uh, we, I've got Jimmy, uh, 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 Richie Valens, um, uh, La Bamba's in there. So, so um, it, was, it was just an enormous amount of fun. Yeah, I have no complaints, just so okay. you know. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> and I will quote you. <laughs> Philip Dobbert, the, 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 yeah, the, the reprint, the second edition we'll have on the back. Philip Dobbert, I have yes. no complaints. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of quotes, you have a bunch of quotes here on the back of the book cover, including from Becky Harris, who we've had on the show, who, uh-huh. like who we would like to have on the show. So when you got these quotes, did you send the book out to these people or did you call these people while you were writing it and get consulting information from them how did how did all of that come to be the the way this works is this is something you do with your editor and it's after the book is is basically uh in pdf form and then you say who do you want to send it to who would be good to put it to have on the back um and you put together a a series of people um, and then he sends it out or your, whoever your editor is. Actually, most editors now are, are she's, but, but uh, um, the editor will send it out. Most people who buy books are women too, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, uh, your editor will send it out. And some people will say, yes, yeah, sure. And others will say, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Or um, I have a conflict of interest. I have a, you know, I'm working with a distillery, a whiskey, a whiskey distiller, and this would be a conflict of interest. So, so um, you send them out that way and you uh, hope for the best, cross your fingers and hope they like it. Yeah. Basically you send an electronic, an electronic galley proof. Correct. Um, and people read or skim and say, eh, yeah, sure. I could say a nice thing or two. Mm-hmm. But during right. the research, did you reach out to anybody for any any information about their personal experiences or their history knowledge? Um, yes, there were a few, and there were. I, I will mention. I think the one, uh, the one or two who were who were m- most cooperative, um, 
Maker's Mark Distillery has, you know, it's a huge operation. So I ended up talking with someone who is communications law, something like that. We interviewed Denny Potter on this show, by the uh, way. Great interview. Yes. So it it wasn't Denny, but but, um, uh, I was able to send him not only requests for uh, the picture of of um, Maggie Samuels. Um, I was able to send him the entire chapter or the part that they had that was about Maker's Mark and say, can you help me with this and tell me if I've got something wrong or something like that? He was incredibly helpful. Colin was incredibly helpful. But I'll tell you, there, there's, there are two kinds of people. In- Colin's also a writer. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Dead distillers and the uh, Urban Moonshiners Handbook. Mm -hmm. It exactly. He writes very well. He's he's a he's a very smart guy. Yeah. You can pick it up from from the minute he opens his mouth. So so he was very helpful. There 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 are two kinds of people in the world. Psychologists say there are two kinds of people in the world, people who think there are two kinds of people and people who don't. Okay? <laughs> but there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are helpful and there are people who are, aren't. And there were a whole bunch of people who were helpful. What, one of the things that surprised us was um, our interactions with archivists, uh, librarians, when you ask the librarian a question, hey, can, do you have a copy of this cookbook? You get an answer from them and they will say, and by the way, I have this one and this one and this one. Mm-hmm. Also, um, there are, there's a curator, there's a, some library, I forget, the, I forget exactly where, there's some library that actually has a collection, dedicated collection of cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And uh, that curator was willing to help us all we wanted. Mm-hmm. Another one that was very, very nice to us uh, was the Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. The Mount oh, yeah. Vernon Inn. Um, there's three recipes from their restaurant in there, and they let us mm-hmm. do that. They checked our our scholarship on the distillery. They agreed to let us do the the illustrations. Um, they were also incredibly helpful. Yeah. There are others who, who never respond. When yes, we them. know them. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've come across a few of those. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, don't yeah. Know, I don't know why, but yeah, they just they, a, up, a plug here for the LA public library, uh, there which, which is home to a massive, collection of culinary texts and about which there is a great book called the librarian is it the librarian of the library about the history of the los angeles library Um, it's it was a a very very um good seller Mm -hmm. and um it's it's a great read so there were other ones and i i don't think i'm giving away terribly many trade secrets when you would ask for a recipe some people would say, sure, go right ahead. Other people would say, yeah, you can have it for $600. Right. Got a license, maybe. You, you, you know that feeling? Yep. Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And they, and then you go, okay, well, we're going to have to find a substitute. Never mind that recipes cannot be copyrighted. It, recipes cannot be copyrighted, but you don't want to put one in. No, of course not. Without somebody saying, yes, right. This, this is good. So we had to search around for those. And, and if you're reading through the book and you come across something and you say, how the heck is there not a recipe from this cookbook, which was so popular at this time. And my answer to that will be uh, because it would have cost me $600. There's a lot of stuff I haven't done because it would have cost me. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So how do you want people to use this book and, and create these, these dinners? Um, Absolutely. I think that's going to, I'm going to have to do that because I think the first thing I want is for people to have fun and they can have fun reading it. If, if you can have fun reading the history, skipping, you can have fun reading the whiskey descriptions because I pulled out and all the tasters in there, by the way, gave me permission. I look for people who are really terse and look for people who won't really flowery. You can enjoy the whiskeys. You can enjoy the recipes. You can enjoy the music. You can pick from it. If, you're, if something interests you more than something else, you can pick from it what you want. Most important thing is that people have fun. The next important thing is maybe you'll learn something along the way. Um, this, is a, this is an approach to learning uh, that I think is underutilized. Yeah. And that's taste it smell it, uh, drink it, listen to it, watch it, experience it, experience it. And that's, that was, that's incredibly important to me that people uh, do that. Now, when it comes to that also, it's okay. It's perfectly fine with me. If you read one of the histories and you discover something that I left out, something that you think I got wrong, Something that you know I got wrong. And then flame you on social media. And then absolutely. Go <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to be the pinata. No, no. At your no. whiskey party. That's a really good thing. I'm going to use that. I am happy to be the pinata at your whiskey party. That's Very awesome. nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are whiskeys made in Mexico now. So uh, 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 the and, Mexican uh, whiskey right. pinata party. As it was during Prohibition. It wasn't only Canada, it was Mexico as well. Um, You can uh, take the uh, whiskeys, you can substitute your own. In fact, I'll tell you this, but don't tell anybody. Uh, This is, there's one whiskey choice that I would probably switch out now uh, because I found something um, uh, that's a little more historic in its... uh, um, value. Uh, You can take the recipes, substitute your own. The most important thing, as we would tell our friends, is stick with the the main ingredient. So you can talk about, you know, why why were beans so popular in the Wild West? Why was lobster so popular in colonial times? So you can create any lobster dish you want. If you lo- use lobster, then you can explain this is this is why it's here. Mm-hmm. And ov- obviously, the music is up for grabs. Um, I give you a place to start. You can 
pick and choose as you please, add what you want. And if I can engage people like that, bring people together, if the book can, I can't, nobody ever wants to speak with me other than well, you. We do. I know you're, you're, you're my best friends now. Did you know that? Um, we're special interest consumers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're niche. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> so am I. Um, and uh, uh, that's what I, that's what I really hope. I want to hear that people are enjoying it and having fun with friends as they do it, but you can sit and read it yourself and, and giggle here and there along the way and enjoy the book and taste as the, as the blurbs on the back say, read it with a bottle of whiskey open next to you and have fun. So when you were doing the dinners originally, before you started doing the book, uh, how long would they generally last an hour, two hours, three hours, or was it vastly different across? (laughs) Or was it Virginia Woolf? It was, it was, it was not Virginia Woolf. Uh, Obviously people would get together and they would have uh, an enormous amount of fun doing it. One of the things that actually also happens um, and this is something also that I'm, uh, I'm kind of proud of, is that when you get to the 50s and the 80s and the 2000s, people would at the table would start to talk about their own experiences. They would talk about what, their, what was on their mother's recipe list. Uh, they ate uh, spaghetti with tomato sauce, every week um, had a, had steak and, and some people would actually bring from the, the people who did the 50s and the 80s, what I served my kids, um, what my parents told me they ate, and they would actually reminisce with one another about their own experiences around the dinner table. Um, and it always brought a smile on my face to see people doing a little bit of self-disclosure about their own childhood or their own raising of their own children. And that was really very rewarding for us. I bet. I bet. Um, about, about now, you, 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 you told us uh, earlier on, well, actually, before we started the podcast and our, 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 our pre-talk, Uh-oh. pre-chat, that you're not a cocktailian. And I'm um, not a cocktailian. But I am a four-letter word user, and you told me to be careful. Yes, I could yes. drop a bomb you know, every know, once in a while. You know, to to you know to a, to a scholar of uh, of, of Freud, uh, Jung is a four-letter word. Um, anyway, um, um, surely your 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 research revealed something about the development and rise of cocktail culture. Mm-hmm. So perhaps perhaps you could share that with us instead of talking to us about your your favorite cocktails. Okay. Um, the, the current, I think some historians would suggest that the current cocktail boom, and you guys can correct me, really uh, got a good jump start uh, with television shows, mm-hmm. right? Sex in the City. Yep. I think bartenders, especially in New York, would... Um, discovered that they were being asked for a lot more cocktails when Mad Men and Sex in the Cities were big hits on television. So cocktail culture um, got a big boost then. Cocktails actually originate, I believe, in the Prohibition era, 
uh, when much of the whiskey that people could get or gin, whatever, might not have been the same quality that we are used to today. Mm -hmm. And they had to mix them up in order to make them palatable. So I would suggest that in the history of cocktails, those are two very important events. How wrong am I, Philip? No, 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 you're correct. No, prohibition, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the history of the cocktail goes back in, into at least the 18th century, although there were, there were libations made uh, centuries before that, but we didn't come to call them the cocktail until uh, it, the, the word cocktail first appeared in print in the late 18th, and, there, and a recipe for one first appeared in uh, 1806. But we have prohibition to thank for sweet and fruity cocktails okay. uh, because they were designed to mask to mask the inferior quality of um, of spirits mm -hmm. produced domestically during the during prohibition yes we won't get into the etiology of the term cocktail um i was able to find about five six seven oh, yeah. of them. there's some no of one them, story yeah. and some of them are not are not um repeatable in pleasant company Yes, now, not, not suitable for work. Not suitable <laughs> for family consumption. But they're out there, and it was that was a that's a perfect example of how history um, has multiple interpretations. Yeah, yeah, history can both enlighten and obscure. Yeah, it's probably good that it does both. <laughs> yes, yes, certainly makes it more interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to tell us about this book or your experience making the book that you think the, the any valedictory to? remarks? Yes. Uh, it, uh, it's going to be quick. And it's just that I hope people buy it and I hope people enjoy it. And I hope people have as much fun reading it as I had writing it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. we will be having uh, links to the various places that you can purchase the book on our website. So anyone who's interested in buying one uh, can go to our website, spiritsofwhiskey.com and click on, I think we have, I think we have like four or five different links that we have for you for different places you can get it. Yeah, there, there are other places to get it now, I think, but the, the top four are, are there. Yeah. I'm sure you've got them. I do. Hector sent them over. It's great. All right. Very good. Harris, this has been, this has been a delight. Yes. And the book is a delight. It is. And I can't wait to actually, you know, once COVID is over and we can really get large parties together, uh, I can't wait to start having American history through the, through whiskey glass parties myself. Ticking, ticking through the book. That, that, that reminds me, I don't think I answered one of your questions, Carrie, about how long these dinners would be. Oh, yeah. They never, they never lasted less than three hours. Wow. Okay. And on occasion, we literally had to put our shoe in somebody's behind to get them to leave. <laughs> you know it's about, love it. you it's know also, about turning the pineapple on its side? <laughs> no, I don't. You keep a pineapple in the home. Uh, it's an old, old tradition. And you turn it on its side. And that is the signal that it is time to leave. You know who David Byrne is? Oh, very well. Yes, okay. very, very much so. One of his songs has a line to uh, the effect that um, uh, heaven is when everybody leaves your party at the same time. Right. Exactly. Heaven. Heaven is you, can a place. Also, you can also, by the way, you don't have to try and do 16 at once. 
please don't try and do 16 at once. No, that would be a lot you of can food break and a lot it up. of whiskey. You can break it up however you want and do it multiple times. Well, that's what I plan to do. Um, Harris, thank you so much for showing us uh, kind of a, a walkthrough of your book. And I'm very excited to continue reading it because um, I, I do love history and I definitely love history of whiskey. So when we saw this come by our desk, we were very excited to get you on. So very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's stories in this episode's blog post. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Slanchava. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.